When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live, where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the head of market analysis, and joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. Hello, and welcome to episode 31 of the Market Watch podcast. And I am joined by Eddie Donmez. Eddie, how's it going? Good, Ant. Been uh, working a lot more closely with you over the last few weeks, so that's always a good thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah every, everything's good. Yeah, I, I tried to formalize it for the benefit of the podcast and ask you how you are, but I've just been on the Zoom call with you pretty much all week. So yeah, it's, we're, we're definitely pumping that stock price for sure. The Zoom shares trying to, uh, trying to do our part. But look, straight, straight into it, because there's, there's tons of interesting stuff that's happened this week. And um, we're going to talk about Kathy Woods and Michael Burry, the new kind of big short that's come from the infamous Burry about uh, the ARK Innovation Fund. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk a little bit about Tesla. Where do we even begin from the, uh, the, the new Terminator that Elon unveiled last night to the autopilot system for their self-driving vehicles and the issues they're, they're confronting there. They'll talk about Facebook as well. The virtual office app Horizon Work Room was announced last night. Be good to get your thoughts on that. Uh, and then Amazon going to open some department stores. Why and and what does the what are the uh, implications for that? But before I begin, uh, and, and we really get your input on those those single stock stories, just to give a bit of a, a macro overlay to what's been happening this week. And actually, from a equities. And commodity perspective, we're actually heading for one of our worst weeks for the entire year. Um, now, if you do follow Amplify's content online and you look at my briefings in the morning, uh, first of all, I would say keep calm and carry on. And one of the main points is there, as I will state, there is reasons that have acted as I think a combination of factors that have created this move. But if you go back just to last week, we were trading this incredibly narrow range 
and we were kind of grinding our way up to record highs where we hit the inevitable 100% gain in the S&P from the March 23rd pandemic low. And uh, that always smells like trouble and always has been historically. That's when we tend to see corrections in the equity market. So a couple of things though, catalysts to be aware of if you haven't been you know, on the pulse of markets throughout the week. And one of the first ones is the FOMC minutes came out midweek. That was definitely a trigger point for markets because in summary, the thing you need to know is that most officials see tapering happening this year. And Piers and I are pretty sick to the back teeth of talking about tapering and transitory factors, but that is what is the focal point for, for global markets. And uh, the fact that they see that and they were vocalizing that as most officials was was kind of putting to bed then the, the idea of Q1 potentially being the commencement of tapering. So a little bit sooner, a little bit more hawkish. On COVID, um, it remains ever present, really, especially Asia and Australia in particular. We've seen very onerous measures adopted in New Zealand after just one case was identified. Uh, Australia and Sydney uh, their lockdowns being rolled over for a number of weeks now, and we're seeing other pockets of, of the Far East as well doing the same. In the US, patients are dying in US hospitals now at levels not seen since February, um, and it could worsen if you actually look at the intensive care figures in the um, states which have a very low vaccine take-up. And then again, there's that political connotations as well over Republican states, deep red states, um, seeing worst case outbreaks. So that's another factor as well. Then you throw in the efficacy question over Pfizer uh, and how that decreases and actually drops below the effectiveness of the Astra drug after four months, according to Oxford, well, an Oxford University, I must, uh, I must say, who obviously partner with Astra study, but nonetheless, uh, that increases the necessary need for booster shots Biden and the UK strategies to roll those out in September. But I was looking at some stats, Eddie, um, on our world in data. Fantastic website for any student if you're doing research, things like that. But the percentage is still low single digits of the global um, first dose vaccinations. For, for So basically, non-wealthy countries are still woefully lagging in their adoption of vaccines. And we're talking about boosters for the rich, essentially. So here's that disconnect somewhat between um, the kind of solution for COVID long-term, because the more ever-present it remains in areas that can't afford at least access now to those drugs, there's always the chance of further mutation of this, this virus going forward. So something for the more long-term. Um, and then the other thing before we get on to Afghanistan, which is kind of the big media headline, was uh, obviously China continues its regulatory crackdown. Um, giants like Alibaba, record lows. Uh, the Hang Seng Tech Index is pretty much halved <laughs> in the case of the last few weeks. It's quite incredible, really. But we talked about that a lot in, in last week's pod. And then, yeah, Afghanistan. Just quite shocking scenes, really, at the beginning of the week. And I was just littered with questions about what does this mean for markets? What does this mean for markets? And um, the main point here is that I think the, the easy assumption is to think it's going to destabilize the Middle East and oil price shock and these sorts of things where actually it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So a few things I think to be aware of, 
first off, the Taliban taking control of Afghanistan, I think context is key. And the reason I say that is that the Taliban ruled Afghanistan prior to the US-led invasion following the 9-11 attacks. So the Taliban were in control from the mid-90s to 2001. Um, but for the last 20 years, of course, the US plus NATO have supported the government in Afghanistan. But what has happened here is Joe Biden had already agreed back in April that the American forces would leave the country. That was actually supposed to have happened a number of months ago. Um, but now that's happening. Uh, and what has led to is a lot of the provincial cities have been slowly captured by the Taliban and it got super accelerated in the last couple of days that led to the scenes that you've, you've had. So the handover of power wasn't unexpected. It was always going to happen. It was almost just how quickly the withdrawal has been that's created this kind of episode of uh, a lot of frenetic scenes coming out of Kabul, the capital. Um, what does it mean for markets? Well, I think oil, you're looking in the wrong place. Um, even though um, situated in that region are countries like Iran, uh, to the south, Pakistan, um, the main thing here I think that I want to touch upon, because there's a video I did on this on YouTube you can check out more directly, is about China. <laughs> and I was having a bit of a, a chat about this with some of the other guys in regards to simplifying geopolitics but i kind of think of the world as in there's two teams and it's almost like the olympic games scenario there's team usa and then there's team china now on team usa you have people like the uk you know what biden does boris follows let's withdraw this type of scenario um, on that team you might have saudi arabia perhaps india but then you flip that and think of every one of those countries, the country of which they generally have a geographical border with. Um, so India, Pakistan on the bench for China. Who else is on the bench for China? Russia. Who else? Iran. <laughs> and when you kind of break this down and deconstruct it, it does go some way then. When I heard the comments out of the foreign ministry of China, the day the Taliban took control saying, we really look forward to working with the Taliban government. To me, this is all incredibly uh, just part of the typical Chinese strategy, which is when you're down, we'll be there with our checkbook to help you guys out. Uh, and that's what they will say. But in reality, we know what that entails. We've seen this in uh, large parts of the African continent, for example hugely underutilized in terms of its natural resources because of the difficulty and money and expensive cost to really generate productivity from those areas. So the key thing here is Beijing is unlikely to deploy any military force seeking instead to use diplomatic, I like this, someone wrote this, economic inducements <laughs> to coax the Taliban on the path of peaceful reconstruction. Why would they do that? Well, guess what? Like with everything in life, money talks. And in China, for sure, the, the thing that they're very keen on being a manufacturing still, at least for now, led nation is rare earths. And according to, uh, to studies in 2020, there's apparently around one to $3 trillion worth of rare earth materials sat there 
just waiting to be taken. And China are fully aware of that. And so anything from ele electronics to electric vehicles, satellites, aircraft, you name it, they all use, I mean, I have got a list here of rare earth elements. I can't even say half of them, never mind remember them. So, you know, aluminium, gold, silver, zinc, mercury, lithium, of which I'm sure you'll talk about a little bit when we get to Tesla on the latter point. So this is why China's getting involved. But the, the, the end point with that, and to round this off, is it's China again. And it's China getting uh, more deeply involved with the Taliban, Afghanistan, Russia, Iran, all at a point where the US is trying to figure things out uh, on, its, on a, on a long-term uh, kind of geopolitical level with its allied nations. So again, the confrontation between the US and China, it's not going to change, not heading into the midterms. Uh, and then the, the other side of this is Biden and the US. Uh, of course, for Joe Biden, if you think about it at the moment, COVID is heading in the wrong direction. He's had a real struggle trying to push through and still yet to really progress uh, definitively with his um, his. Uh, infrastructure plan he's still got a reconciliation bill to push through and the debt ceiling is looming so problematic to say the least uh, and definitely we've seen this play out with uh, the way of which uh, the the pushback on the handling of afghanistan has had a negative political impact on biden and boris in the in the uk but hopefully that's your summary from the context, but obviously all of these things have weighed on general sentiment in what otherwise seasonally is a quiet period of the year. Oil demand is being kind of recalibrated, our expectations forward looking, so oil's remained under pressure. The dollar is bid as well on the FMC hawkishness, which has not helped commodities either. Uh, so hopefully that's a bit of context to the week. Um, but look, let's get into, let's get Eddie involved and let's talk about some of the stocks news and and eddie um, i was sharing the the tweet myself earlier in the week so um kathy woods or what was it they call her the queen queen kathy queen kathy she tweeted right so this is it and you can and, and please do give the context of why she tweeted this so everyone's informed but she said to his credit michael burry so michael burry the big short character you're familiar with. She said, Michael Burry made a great call based on fundamentals and recognized the calamity brewing in the housing and mortgage market. I do not believe he understands the fundamentals that are creating explosive growth and investment opportunities in the innovation space. What's this, what's this Twitter spat all about, Eddie? Yeah, some uh, serious shots fired. Uh, by Kathy. Um, but this is, yeah, this is really uh, Team Michael Burry or Team Kathy Wood. You choose your fighter, who you got. Um, so, of course, famous investor who called the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008. He recently took aim, if you remember, not too long ago uh, at Elon Musk and really established quite a large uh, short position in the form of put uh, put contracts against Tesla. Uh, but now he's kind of turned his attention to Kathy Wood uh, and, of course, ARK Invest. And they've got a lot of kind of flagship uh, ETFs, like the Innovation uh, ETF. Uh, and really her pro premise is 
investing heavily in really innovative, disruptive technology. So these are, you know, names like Tesla, for example, which is looking to capture the electric vehicle market. Um, Genomics, which I'm very, very interested in, in the sense of CRISPR technologies and gene editing and what that means for kind of human uh, kind of gene editing going forward. Uh, but her yeah, premise is all about innovation, investing in high growth, usually loss making, companies uh, it's not the case for all of them um but yeah super disruptive equities that has come under fire um kind of more recently uh the, but let, let's not be around the bush her performance as a fund manager has been incredible over the last kind of three four five years um with these etfs seen huge inflows um and of course this is all on you know the fed low interest rates uh, the huge amount of kind of monetary stimulus and both fiscal stimulus the stimmy checks um and those kind of single name equities obviously fall in in favor for those kind of robin hood traders that got the stimulus checks um but now michael burry is kind of questioning the fundamentals of the company i would say uh, the companies that the etf holds itself um much like he did in the housing crisis is analyzing the fundamentals of going wow something's not right here he's doing the same really with these kind of the stocks that, that ARK holds and obviously at the kind of ETF level, the, the ARK Innovation Fund. Um, so he's now long, and or his firm, Scion Capital, is now long 235,500 shares worth of puts. Uh, so again, different to how he was long the puts of Elon Musk, a Tesla, previously. Actually, he's actually uh, short the, long the puts, short the shares. Um, this time. Um, so he's kind of some of the, you know, why is he happy to take such a large bet against all these these names? So let me run through uh, kind of some of the fundamentals of the companies that are in that ETF. So only 14 out of the 51 companies in the ETF report a profit. Uh, and six of those are actually in the top 10 holdings of the fund. So Tesla being the number one holding, make, making up about 10%. But uh, it was a really good uh, tweet storm from Christopher Bloomstrand, who's a fund manager, taking a look at some of the fundamentals. And, you know, some of the, the metrics he covers are somewhat uh, kind of short-sighted and old-fashioned, I would say, uh, in the terms of how he looks at these types of companies. And we can have a debate of whether that is the appropriate measures. But what he kind of uh, looks at is something like P multiples, which is price to earnings. Um, so this is basically how much do investors pay per unit of earnings that a company generates? So if Amazon or a company A generates $1 of earnings and the PE is 100, investors are paying $100 per unit of earnings. And this is kind of a, a relative valuation method that has been used historically to see whether things or stocks are undervalued or overvalued according to peers, according to, so peers being, similar companies operate in the same space and also according or against the index, for example, like the S&P 500. So he takes a look at some of those names like Tesla, 174 times earnings, Roku, 596 times earnings, Square, 677 times earnings, Shopify, 426 times earnings, Coinbase, 158 times earnings. So you get the point. So a bit of context then, what does like a Buffett type stock trader on those comparables just yes. to give context to what what is 500 times compared to like more than a, 
an average over like a, a typical industrial stock, for example? Yeah, so I, let, let's compare it to the S&P 500 price to earning, yeah. for example, like what is the average of the 500 largest companies in the US, which of course has a composition of tech stocks, <laughs> an increasing weighting of tech stocks more recently, but energy, industrials, etc. And that usually trades between, let's say, 15 and 30 times earnings historically, um, okay. 30 being on very much the, the high end of that, but something like 20, 25 times earnings. So to put into context, they're expensive by against the index, but also against peers. Um, but the argument against using price to earnings multiples with tech stocks and disruptive names is, of course, they're making a loss. They're investing heavily in the next, you know, gene editing technology or renewable energy uh, kind of um, sources. They're investing in electric vehicles, which, of course, is very capital intensive, right? You need money to produce these technologies, to buy gigafactories, to invest in research and development, to you know, eventually come up with an AstraZeneca-style vaccine, right? So inherently in these disruptive names, you need to invest a lot, right? So contrary to what he's pointing out in terms of are these expensive or not? You know, is that the right measure? Because this can be misleading when you're looking at these high growth names because they're often investing heavily. So of course they're not generating earnings because the cost reduces their net profit, their profits generally, and hits their earnings. So of course they look expensive. So the classic example to put into context uh, for investors all, all around the world that are listening, the classic example is Am Amazon. In 2012, that had a 3,000 times earnings multiple and uh pretty sure that became a very very profitable company in the end right so look at where amazon's trading today versus 2012 so if you didn't invest based on that stock being expensive according to historical multiples and didn't get that they were investing for scale and disruption and into the profit machine that is amazon web services which is making ridiculous margins but all because they invested so heavily previously Right. So if you're not investing in these kind of stocks, then you could miss out on someone like Amazon. Is that the rule or is Amazon a unique, unique case? OK, arguably, you would argue the latter, right, that it, Amazon is a once in a lifetime generational stock. And this is what Michael Burry is saying, really, is how much of these, how, what proportion of these companies are going to actually be the next Amazon or provide the technology for gene editing or, um, you know, renewable energy and things like that. So basically, the ARK ETF is a super disruptive portfolio of companies, a super disruptive ETF of companies, and Burry's happy to bet against this, this happening, essentially. So what, you know, for anyone who ha is invested in the, the ARK ETF, what, what can you say then that what's Kathy's belief of why we're going through like a post-pandemic period, the Fed are talking about tapering, people are going to start then as soon as that ball is rolling start talking about rate hikes. And we've talked about this before, this sector rotation and, and how tech doesn't really behave in a particularly positive way in that environment. What's Kathy's belief though to, to keep her investors happy? Yeah, so... I would say that 
Burry, of course, when you look at those kind of fundamental metrics, you would argue he's correct, right? These are highly valued stocks that could, if there was a mean reversion or a spike in inflation and things like that, and the threat of more aggressive tapering, as we've kind of mentioned, that's pretty much a done deal now. Um, but in terms of like, you know, rates going upwards, Kathy Wood, of course, as a, she actually started as a kind of economist macro uh, investor. Um, so she has a she's a very strong economic background, um, and generally commentators and she's basically betting against the Fed being able to raise interest rates on the back of inflation being actually transitory. So that's her belief that inflation is indeed transitory, uh, and the Fed can't raise rates. And kind of know the story there that private debt in terms of auto loans, student loans corporate leverage is at all-time highs, government debt to GDP, you can talk about the debt ceiling, you know, is ever increasing because of the coronavirus shock. There's so much debt in the world, it's flooding around and what's that function of super low rates, right? It's almost free to borrow money, to invest, to buy houses, hence why that the, the housing market is super hot. Um, so she's basically betting against um, the Fed being able to uh, kind of raise rates and inflation being transitory, which of course would have a negative impact on those super growthy tech names and disruptive companies that don't generate profits today and now. So in summary for, for this segment then, is it not a case of there's a, an outright winner? Is this a case of timing and going through this, this kind of transition through the post-pandemic phase as we find our way that there'll be some perhaps short-term bumps for Kathy, but long-term, she'll be okay. I definitely think it's a timing thing. So I don't, you know, would you bet against Michael Burry? Probably not. Would you bet against Kathy Wood long-term, let's say 30, 50 years of time? Maybe not. But again, it depends on the stocks that you're looking at. And, you know, her funds had a fantastic performance uh, so far. Um, but, you know, it, I definitely think it's going to be a timing thing. The ARK ETF is actually down this year. It was up huge amounts in 2020 for all the aforementioned reasons regarding retail trading and loose monetary policy. So if we do indeed see a more higher permanent level of inflation and thus interest rates, how do these companies fare if they do not, you know, let's say, produce on the, the prospect of generating profitability and disruptive technologies. Um, so that's what, that's what I would say on that. Okay. Well, look, one of the companies you mentioned a number of times there was, of course, Tesla. And there's two, kind of two hot topics with Tesla that have been in focus this week. Earlier in the week, the US federal agency in charge of road safety opening an official investigation into the company's self-driving autopilot system and then last night i woke up to the dancing humanoid uh, and then elon musk looking very much like he was wearing the same clothes i think they're exactly the same clothes that arnold schwarzenegger wears in terminator 2 whether that was intended or not um, but yeah this whole idea about this tesla bot that they've announced so on these two things starting with the road safety stuff i mean you were talking about this earlier in the week to a couple of people I know. So what, what's the deal there? What's happening with, um, with that investigation? Yeah, so they're essentially facing an invest investigation by a US regulatory kind of agency uh, for their autopilot software. 
Um, so I think between the years of 2014 and 2021, there was 11 accidents involving basically a defect is what is believed in the autopilot software that caused 17 injuries and actually one death. Uh, and this is a kind of glitch or a defect where the autopilot software that Tesla uh, basically developed has a real problem with stationary vehicles. Uh, which sounds funny, but, um, you know, analyzing whether they're a threat or not, and also um, kind of emergency vehicles. So police cars, ambulances, and how obviously they kind of are in this. They break the rules, don't they? When, they, they, when you're on the road. <laughs> they break the rules because they have to, and it's kind of this emergency, non-parallel behavior that mm. the, the autopilot software struggles to recognize. Um, but this, one of the incidents where the, I think the, one of the people died was it, it, the, one of the Teslas that was on autopilot. And I think the guy was asleep or he was, you know, not, wow. not, not, um, not, not definitely didn't have his hands on the wheel or something like that. And it crashed into, I think it was a Chevy Tahoe that was stationary. Um, so don't quote me on that, but that was one of the incidents for sure. Um, but what this means basically for Tesla's fully self-driving and, you know, robo taxis, which for some, you know, 2030, 2035 makes up a huge portion of the valuation in terms of the sum of the parts kind of element. Um, even, you know, what's going to happen now, NHTSA are going to have launched this official investigation. And that's why it's important to have on the radar because it's actually a formal investigation okay um so they're gonna take you know uh, speak to tesla um and you know investigate these defects and if they do indeed find these these defects they can take tesla to court um and it can be a formal recall if they are successful of around 735,000 tesla cars and it affects the whole range is that likely to happen like now or anytime soon uh, probably not so it's not an immediate um kind of risk but it does raise kind of concerns right about fully self-driving autonomous vehicles and robo taxis and i think we know the drill by now is just statistically they are safer right if you look at roadside accidents and things like that but that's removing the human element because just like irobot just like Terminator, if a robot or a, a vehicle, autonomous vehicle kills someone, that's major news, right? But if a drunk driver kills someone or something like that, then unfortunately that isn't major news, right? So there's always that connotation with new technologies and that kind of adoption phase. Um, so it does kind of pose a bit of a risk um, to the valuation kind of going forward. But on a lighter note, <laughs> they've um, Elon Musk obviously unveiled the human humanoid robot that's using kind of Tesla's AI technology, and this was on the AI Day, which is this big kind of housey vibe, you know, house music, super cool. Uh, I think Anthony would call it smoke and mirrors, maybe. Um, <laughs> but he was uh, touting this robot that came and did a dance. It was like a human, obviously, in the thing, but then had the robot uh, on stage. And this is a you know a five for eight robot, okay, that's basically going to drive the Tesla cars going forward. And this, of course, is um, based on you know one of the reasons Tesla has such an advantage is that it's collected huge amounts of data, you know, through uh, mapping and these cars driving around and collecting all this kind of um, this data to form their neural networks and things like that. Um, so 
you know, that's the advantage of, of Tesla. This robot is going to kind of drive, it's going to be five for eight, it's going to be able to walk at speeds of five miles per hour. Uh, it's got human level hands that has a carrying capacity of 45 pounds. It can deadlift 150 pounds. <laughs> I think that's probably more than uh, me and Anthony uh, right now. Um, and it basically is aiming to eliminate dangerous, repetitive and boring tasks according to, to Elon Musk. Um, so, of course, we made the joke. I hope he's watched iRobot uh, and Terminator. Um, but one of the best quotes from, from the day was at, from him, at a mecha mechanical level, you can run away from it. And most likely, you can overpower it. Hopefully, that doesn't happen. But you never know. Like, playing... Oh, he's, to... such a, he's such <laughs> a marketeer. It is unreal. And just like you were saying, I mean... Yeah, smoke and mirrors. I mean, there's a serious problem Tesla could face with that investigation, obviously. I mean, a recall of the scale that you were talking about, surely that's got to be somewhat near catastrophic. But, you know, the more than the necessity to bring this out, and obviously he had that. He's been, I'm sure he's had this uh, AI day, I truly believe, gimmick uh, on the table for some time, well before that investigation has come to light. But it's just another classic. And, you know, we were talking about before the cyber truck. You remember that one when he got the steel ball and he went, you know, this truck's got super <laughs> glass and he threw the ball and it smashed the car, got another one to prove that that was just a one-off and smashed the glass again. But I don't know. I haven't seen anyone driving a cyber truck recently. Have you? No. So that was, of course, as we commented on the time was, you know, the best marketing stunt ever right like i think he collected like 50 million in deposits you know to finance his at the time you know some of the liquidity issues that they've had you know in 2008 as we talked about you know where they nearly went bankrupt in 2017 and 2019 i believe it is with the model 3 rollouts you know all these things were great liquidity providers for you know running the operation and trying to ramp up and scale scale production um, but yeah, I think um, it was a great PR event. I've not seen a Cybertruck, and I think I saw news that it was, again, delayed till the, either the end of this year or the end of next year, you know, citing, of course, conveniently, supply chain issues, the, the chips uh, shortages that have deepened because of coronavirus, obviously, which, of course, as we've seen, uh, Toyota came out, of course, to cut production. Uh, by 40% in September. And this is really COVID, a COVID story where um, it's hit, you know, all the assembly lines and the, the key materials that they need. So my forecast, I guess, for Tesla going forward, particularly in the next few months ahead, if you kind of rattle off what we, we've talked about, you've got this ongoing investigation, which again, I'm not too sure will cause too much material kind of damage. You've obviously got on a macro story, the Fed tapering, um, and, you know, COVID rolling on and cases uh, rising. I had COVID really recently, if you remember, uh, knocked me out for two weeks, was cut, you know, very ill. I definitely don't think we're out of the woods on that kind of COVID story. But what, again, what that means for uh, Tesla's next quarter, for example, if they are citing and they can't get the, uh, you know, the inputs to produce their cars and, and production misses, for example, then, of course, if you look at everything holistically, look, may, potentially there's a few kind of volatile uh, months going forward. Do I like Tesla as a stock? Sure. You know, in, in, in the coming years to come, I think it's a fantastic company. I think it's 
um, disruptive. I think it's exactly what we need more of. Do I think there's maybe a potential risk to the share price and the valuation over the next few months? Sure. Okay. And, and with the big tech, you know, this week it's been really busy actually. And, and the day before we had Facebook come out and they unveiled this new horizon workroom, which is basically a new free Facebook app designed to allow employees to work together in a shared imaginary office viewed through the Oculus virtual reality headsets. So um, yeah, keen to get your, your take on that because I've always been a very big believer in VR technology. I remember when um, I was upgrading a phone a few years ago and Vodafone were dishing out the Oculus when they took it from this super high-end multi-thousand dollar product and they just basically had one you slip your phone in, you got it free with your, with your phone. And I remember putting that on. I was in Madison Square Garden. I was watching the heavyweight championship boxing rounds. And I was like, this is amazing. And then it just never took off. Um, so, you know, just interested to get your, your take really on, you know, is this just like, again, it's kind of one of those things that it's just the first step, the actual wide scale adoption of this is still a little way off yet, because surely my limited knowledge tells me that to run an Oculus headset, it requires some degree of hardware to be able to do that across your workforce to be able to then run this in a, in a collaborative sense, or am I wrong with that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's super cool. <laughs> the nerd in me <laughs> says, wow, this is awesome. And I commented on Martin Harbeck's um, LinkedIn post about it. He's the Facebook group director. Um, and, you know, I, I commented and said, look, this is really cool. Um, I, I mean, I'm a massive fan, I guess, of work from home. I think it's definitely, uh, and I've, you know, came under some criticism, I guess, back in, you know, last year when people were like, no, we'll go straight back to the office, you know, um, work from home is just a temporary thing. Uh, I was a big believer of like, I do genuinely believe that it's changed the way we will work and operate forever. Um, and there'll always be a element of work from home going forward for those, let's say, you know, of course, in the trading floor environment, I think there's definitely a place for being and collaborating on a trading floor, you know, within an investment bank. But do you really need to be in the office if you're, you know, even an M&A advisor, if you're, you know, doing any kind of middle office or back office risk role? It always comes down to cost and profitability. As a company, if I can take out the second biggest cost out to my business being rent or office rent, I'm going to do that all day, every day, right? It's a free pass for the CEOs to take some cost out of the business, you know, so I do believe that maybe firms will have office space, but from what I know and what I hear from kind of my peers is there's definitely a repurposing of office space and a downsizing of maybe we don't need 12 floors, maybe we need two, right? Like when I think back to my S&P days, uh, we were in a you know, shared office in Canary Wharf, 20 Canada Square with a BP, and there was 6,000 people in the building, right? And huge amount in the skyscrapers and do we really need to be there for most of it probably not and obviously we're operating and have been operating for a year successfully um, from home but I think back to the kind of Facebook horizons workrooms and out uh, announcement I think it's super cool um, it's a new virtual experience it brings together kind of mixed reality 
uh, desk and keyboards, remote desktop streaming, spatial audio, virtual whiteboards, you know, hand tracking, all this type of stuff. So it's kind of a, a meet in the middle where you can, we can all operate together, but we're all at home. Of course, the limitation and the downside of this is you have to have an Oculus headset, right, uh, to, to even be here. And uh, I think the tests have said, like, look, even, you know, I think Facebook itself recommend meetings of 30 minutes, you know, no longer than that, because it's just too much, right? Mm. Um, and I think there were, you know, there hasn't been um, a widespread adoption of VR, like, it just hasn't materialized yet because of the hardware being clunky i know facebook are looking to uh lower the weight so even as light as it is after half an hour 45 minutes you know your neck starts to hurt you know the um the material was actually caused some abrasions and there was a facebook recall of these devices like no one forced them to do it they brought it back um and they're actually replacing them with silicon like to to stop you know skin irritation and things like that so you know, all these big tech firms are invested billions in uh, VR, AR, if you think about Apple and things like that. Um, you know, they're still, it's still not, you know, widely adopted by the public. But I definitely think, um, you know, this will uh, be form part of the way we fundament, fundamentally transform the way we collaborate in the future. Um, but of course, this is kind of speaking to Mark Zuckerberg's statement of the metaverse and like this this kind of ideology um but yeah i think it's a really cool thing and i think the more investment in this the better um for sure and i think facebook's uh, at, at the heart of this innovation yeah it's, it's funny you're mentioning and i and i agree about the trading floor environment but i just had a quick look because i remembered ubs and they were experimenting this about a year ago with virtual reality headsets for its bankers to simulate the trading floor um, they were talking about Microsoft's um, HoloLens, I think it was called at, at the time. But yeah, definitely interesting uh, to see how that, that plays out. And then that leads us into the final one, which was earlier um, this week. I read that Amazon eclipsed Walmart in overall sales to become the world's largest retail seller outside of China. Uh, and this comes with them uh, in the Wall Street Journal, sources familiar with the company, uh, suggesting that Amazon could soon open fully-fledged large department stores. So, yeah, what's your thoughts on, on Amazon department stores? I mean, isn't it funny? Didn't we have those? <laughs> Didn't we have those department stores? So Amazon often, of course, blamed for single-handedly destroying the high street. Um, you know, the, the might and the scale, the convenience, just... The amazingness of Amazon, as particularly through the pandemic, um, destroyed all these brick and mortar retails. And of course, with the COVID restrictions, they were the big pandemic winner. So it's funny to see them make the full 360 of destroying their competition and then taking over the department stores uh, and opening their own kind of uh, shops. But of course, you know, you, it's widely reported, you know, they've got the They've opened flagship stores where you can basically walk in, pick up a few things, walk out, you get charged on your Amazon account. You know, it's super, super cool. It's like that prime, super quick, efficient way of, of shopping. Um, so my thoughts on it are it's funny um, that they've kind of come full circle. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's definitely a positive thing that they're going to should be able to showcase the best and the best Amazon products, I would say. Yeah, I've got a. I've already selected the real estate that they need to purchase 
costs four billion pounds and it's pocket change for them yep pocket change for bezos and and jassy um and it's being sold by the weston family any ideas in the west end what building i'm referring to uh very iconic for london's oxford street no no idea so selfridges Ah, they're currently looking to offload selfridges for four billion wouldn't that be a an amazon little little ticket right there that'd be a pretty pretty ideal spot um for them for sure but it would definitely i guess it, i think there's some culture culture shock there if you're gonna get rid of selfridges and replace it with with amazon i'm sure there would be some some pushback on that i, I would think but you know money talks as, as you say in the end, China will come in and buy it. So you heard it here first. Cool. <laughs> All right, Eddie, always a pleasure. And uh, thanks for your input. Hopefully um, everyone found that super interesting, particularly on the, on the tech side, very much uh, focused in this particular episode. Uh, and yeah, don't forget, if you made it to the end, thanks for sticking with us. And don't forget to follow and subscribe to the, the channel, whichever podcast platform you use. And we'll, we'll catch you next week and have a great weekend. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks, Anne. And thanks for listening, guys. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.